It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Gavin Hamilton's Euro Road Trip. This episode, Group D, Croatia. On this podcast, we are in Group D. We're putting the spotlight on Croatia. And I'm talking to journalist and editor Alexander Holliger. Alex is based in the Croatian capital Zagreb, where he is the editor of the leading website, telesport.hr. Now, Alex writes regular columns on football, which have been put together actually in a very well-received book. He also contributes to magazines and newspapers around Europe, including The Guardian, where he wrote about the Croatian national team during the last World Cup, when, of course, Croatia beat England in the semi-final and went on to lose to France in the final. Now, one of the reasons I was very keen to speak to Alex was because he's not been afraid to tackle some of the wider issues affecting Croatian football corruption, racism, hooligan violence, you know, those sort of off-the-pitch issues that a lot of people are afraid to tackle, but he isn't. And and I don't think you can talk about Croatian football and and the incredible success that they've had for such a small country, such a new country, without talking a little bit of politics. And Croatia's an amazing story. You know, a new country, barely two decades old, with the players who were born during a civil war, grew up during a civil war, saw their families displaced as refugees around Europe, and they've come together as a national team and achieved incredible success, particularly when you compare them to their neighbours like Serbia, a much bigger country, Bosnia, a similar-sized country, but Croatia, with a population of 4 million people, have achieved uh, incredible things in, in a short space of time, and Alex, I think, can, can provide some really interesting perspective on the current national team. So... Grab a glass of, of Rakia, the Balkans' favourite fruit brandy. Stick your headphones in as we find out all about Croatia with Alex Holliger. Alex, it's been a pretty bumpy ride, hasn't it, since the, the 2018 World Cup? The World Cup final, of course, and defeat to France. But since then, there was a, a 6-0 defeat to Spain in, in September 2018 in the Nations League. Also been heavy defeats to Portugal and France in, in the 2020 Nations League. And in between that, Croatia won their qualifying group ahead of Wales and also 
fellow qualifiers, Hungary and Slovakia, from that group. So it's, it's been a sort of up and down since the World Cup. Where are Croatia at the moment? That, I think, is not an easy question to be answering. You know, after the World Cup, Croatia's status changed. They suddenly become this big team, you know, the World Cup finalists. And it wasn't easy for them to handle that. They were used to be, uh, you know, outsiders or dark horses or what have you. They were these perennial dark horses in any tournament. But after this, everybody wanted to beat them. And uh, obviously, they had their share of problems. They, uh, some of the players from the World Cup retired. Some of them were either injured or missing uh, because of something else during uh, this Nations League. And from the beginning, uh, the, the manager made it quite sure that he wasn't going to use the Nations League as a competition that he has to win in any of those games. It was more like a uh, good preparation for, uh, you know, really <laughs> important games because the Nations League is kind of a big deal for Croatia in terms of playing with all the other big teams, you know. Before that, Croatia didn't play very often uh, the likes of England, Germany, Spain, Italy. And now they were given this opportunity and, and this is a very useful thing for the team to build character and tactics and all of these things which cannot really be practiced against smaller teams who, who all, uh, you know, park the bus and it, it's, it's just different. But from the competitive perspective, I don't think they were, you know, completely in it from the start. The, the players were still a bit, how would you say, punch drunk or whatever from the World Cup. And uh, it, it wasn't easy for them to get motivated properly after that, especially because uh, Nations League is a new thing and uh, nobody really nobody really saw it as a really competitive competition, <laughs> so mm -hmm. to say. So they were probably a bit more relaxed than they should have been. And uh, the teams that they played seemed uh, very keen to beat them. And they had some personnel issues. So... Uh, um, it was, uh, there were some heavy defeats, but uh, I don't think uh, many people were too worried about that. Because uh, Croatia still did their job in the qualifiers. Uh, they still uh, looked good from time to time. Some of the newer players and options emerged. So it wasn't all bad. It, it's ugly when you, when you lose like that to, to Portugal and Spain. Well, there were some really ugly defeats, but still... It wasn't something that would be a threat for the coach who, who reached the, the, the World Cup final. Sure. You mentioned retirements after the World Cup. Striker Mario Mandzukic retired. Yes. The keeper, Daniel Subasic. Defender, Vedran Korluka retired. But quite a few players carried on. You know, obviously Modric carried on. Rakitic has since retired in September 2020. So... It's been quite a slow process for those players you know, to move on from that squad from the World Cup. Is it a benefit for Croatia that the Euros have been delayed by 12 months? Is there now an opportunity to bring in some new players for the summer? I don't think so. I think most players, most new players who were to be important in this new squad were already ready. And, uh, but the more important issue for the Euros is, I think, Luka Modric, who is absolutely vital for Croatia. He will be a year older 
you know. He's a veteran now. Uh, the manager really has to uh, beware not to overuse him. And also Rakitic has since retired. He would have played in, in, in that uh, Euros if they were held uh, last year. So I don't think it's an advantage at all. But, you know, there's still six months to go and uh, some of these younger, newer players could become even better than they, than they were. So we'll see. Uh, it gives time to build the squad some more, yes. But I don't think it's an advantage. No. You've written in the past about the 2018 World Cup team and how they really had to struggle to break through. The, you know, these are players whose families fled a civil war, you know, they've grown up all around Europe. They've not had easy careers. You know, they, they don't just go to their local team and join their local academy and suddenly they're in the first team and, and playing European football. It's been a struggle for them. And when they came together as a, a unit in the World Cup, that was a really important factor, the struggle they had together as a team. What about this new generation? Because they're still playing, some of them, like the goalkeeper, the new goalkeeper, Livakovic, the striker, Petkovic, at Dinamo Zagreb, they're not yet playing at a European level. They've not yet earned a move you know, to the sort of top level in European football. Is that just because they're young players and they haven't made those steps up yet? You have to look to, you know, individual cases from case to case. Livakovic is a, is a goalkeeper and it's always difficult for a goalkeeper to, to make a, a big transfer. And especially if the club doesn't necessarily need to sell him. His club Dinamo are okay financially at the moment and they didn't have to accept any offer for him and his agents uh, obviously didn't want him to move to a club where he wouldn't be first choice. So that's for him and that's for Petkovic. He's a really specific case because this is a player who played in Italy and hasn't scored for like two years you know. But he has his qualities and he... Uh, at Dinamo Zagreb, for a while, he, he really blossomed and then looked fantastic, even when he played for the national team as well. But afterwards, his form again slumped and he's just very unstable. If he's at his best, he can play for just about any European team. And I think he has proven that playing for Croatia against the big teams. He, he really has these elite qualities. But when he's just a little bit off, you know, he's just this average player. It's difficult for him. And, and as for the others, well, you know, some of the players uh, moved when they were really young and, and they were prob they will probably find their place in the team for the Euros, such as uh, Bradaric, who plays uh, at Lille as left back. And, uh, well, I don't think that you can, you know, establish a rule for any of those players. We're not talking about many of them. It's just, you know, three or four new players who make the, the starting 11. And I don't think uh, it's that much of a big deal if some of them still play in Croatia and they play for Dinamo Zagreb because Dinamo have played uh, Champions League, they've played uh, in Europe. And I think those players are just about ready. Okay, can we talk a little bit about Zlatko Dalic, the coach? who came into the team in the autumn of 2017 at the end of the World Cup qualifying campaign and the, they won the playoff against Greece and he stayed on in charge you know, for the World Cup. But he's not really coached at the highest level in Europe, has he? And he's not won many trophies at club yeah. level. What's the view of him in Croatia? Was he, was he an accident in a way that he was in charge of this team of very good players? Is he respected in, in Croatia? Huh. 
when he was uh, still coaching in Croatia, he was just seen as more or less a mediocre coach who maybe one of the just above average coaches who didn't really achieve much in Croatia. But then he went to Asia and he did big things there. He's really big there. We see him as a superstar coach in Asia and they offered him lots of money you know, on a number of occasions to return. So when he uh, returned to coach Croatia, he was in a way maybe an unknown quantity, you know. People weren't exactly sure what to expect. And there were always talks about uh, his personal links with some of the rulers of Croatian football. <laughs> So people's impression was not that he got his job on account of his, you know, coaching qualities because he wasn't a big name even in Croatia, not to mention Europe, but, you know, through some other links. But the, the other thing was the, his, uh, his really considerable success in Asia. So when he started, he was appointed, I think, uh, maybe 24 hours before the deciding game against Ukraine, he met his players at the airport. Right. Maybe not 24 hours, but 48 hours, whatever. And he instantly proved successful there. He made a connection to players, obviously. It also translated to the playoffs and to the World Cup. He has this specific style of communicating with general public and with the media. And I would say that most people see him as a bit of a populist, you know. He's careful, mostly careful what he says. And uh, he usually says things that make him look humble, you know, and always insists on, 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 on both him and the team and the players being humble and uh, not to get arrogant or anything like that, which is a good thing for their character. I don't know. He's still, I would say, uh, a bit of an enigma, you know, in his character because... I wouldn't like to get too deep into this, but my impression is that maybe I'm being unfair, but I think my impression is that always uh, a part of his communication is a bit of an act, you know? Mm. It always gave that impression. And even though saying that just, you know, like this may sound unfair because he has really had success and the players love him. But uh, this is just my impression. Sure, that's that's very interesting. I, I I want to talk a little bit more about Dallas's tactics and the tactical options, but first let's take a quick break. I'm back with Alex talking about Croatia, and talking about I think specifically the tactics that Dalic has, has got open to him. He tends to play that sort of fairly standard four-two-three-one. That's what they played at the World Cup through the qualifiers. But in the autumn of 2020, he experimented a little bit with a, a 4-3-3, with a, a, a false nine striker, I guess you'd call it, and also 4-4-2 with a, a midfield diamond. Is he looking for different options or would he go back to 4-2-3-1, to do you think? Is that his standard I, tactics? I think he proved flexible in that respect. He didn't just play 4-2-3-1. He also made some tweaks to look at like 4-1-4-1. Basically, 4-3-3, it really has always depended on the role of Modric. I do believe that up to a point, it depends on Modric himself. You know, it's up to him what he feels more comfortable playing. Is it a number 10 or is it a deeper in midfield? Or if he wants to play in a 4-3-3, when Rakitic was here, you know, two of them played 
with uh, Brozovic behind them. Uh, I think that the tactics have been dependent on Modric, Modric's abilities and his wishes, and they still are. Yeah. But now some other players are also grown in importance, such as Nikola Vlasic, who has probably been Croatia's best player in this post-World Cup era, along with Modric, obviously. And Vlasic is best when he's played as number 10. So I'm guessing Dalic's first choice would be Vlasic's number 10 and then Modric playing a, a bit deeper along with Brozovic. We'll see. It doesn't necessarily have to be. Uh, I think Proven's uh, flexible and he has tested various options. I don't think uh, playing with three at the back will be particularly viable option for Croatia, but it is an option. I mean, I, I guess with the three at the back, you need good centre-backs. Uh, you need enough good centre-backs to play that. Yeah. And that's that's a problem for Croatia at the moment, you know, without those... Uh, yeah, it, uh, it's also Lov- a problem Lovren for when... Vida are quite, uh, sort of, they're getting older, aren't they, now? Yeah, yeah, Vida is completely off form now. It's always a problem when your key defender is Dan Lovren. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that, that's not really, you know, comforting. <laughs> but um, we'll see. Uh, there are some uh, new, younger defenders who already proved they can be counted on such as Due Chaletetar, who plays in Marseille. There's also a young Josko Guardiol, who is still a Dinamo, though he signed for Leipzig. Uh, he can play both as centre-back and left-back. He could be a really good option if they played with three at the back. But that's just, you know, uh, theory for now. Yeah. And I guess if you play with three at the back, then you need good full-backs to play. You know, yeah, full-backs uh, full generally are a problem. problem for Croatia. Yes, they have always, for many years, we uh, struggled with either right or left-back. Now uh, we have some options at left-back, and some of those options can play both as wing-backs if need be, or they can just play a normal full-back attacking but uh, at uh, right back, we really have a big problem now. If Shima Vasalko, who has held this position ever since Dario Seven retired, if he's not ready to play and he has been um, much more injured than he was available in the, in the past two years, if he's not available, then Croatia will have a, a quite of a problem there. Any of those players basically can play as wingbacks if you play with three at the back. It's not, it's not a big deal for them, but it's more of a personnel issue. If, if Versailles is not available, who will play on the right side? And in midfield, you mentioned Brozovic as the sort of key yeah. figure in, in the sort of defensive side of things. And maybe alongside Modric, if Vlasic plays in, in the number 10 role. Where does that leave Kovacic, Matteo Kovacic and Mario Pasolic as well? Where does it leave them in terms of the midfield? Kovacic, I think uh, it's a small wonder that he has managed to collect so many caps. He has like 50 of them or something. He was never really a starter for Croatia. And he still is not. Many people were really critical of him when he played for Croatia. He didn't have many really good games for Croatia. But recently this changed and uh, he started to show that he can uh, contribute and that he can be a really important option. So I think Brozovic is definitely a starter. He reinvented himself as this holding midfielder. He has a really good physical capacity 
to play in that role, in, but also technical. So I think he will surely be a first choice. And the other two positions are basically, you know, filling themselves with, with Modric and then Vlasic. So I think Kovacic will still have to wait, but he could be a, a really, really good off-the-bench option. As for Pasalic, uh, his main problem is that this really specific uh, style of play that they do in Atalanta, it's not really translatable to Croatia. And even if it were, there's Vlasic who can play a number 10 better than, than, than Pasalic can. So Pasalic was uh, experimented with in different roles for Croatia, in deeper roles, and it didn't, didn't turn out very well. So I think uh, a sensible thing to do would be uh, to have him as a backup for Vlasic. For yeah, now. and in the wide attacking roles, Ivan Perisic is still the first choice on the left. Is that fair to say? But there are yes, other options. Yes. Other options on the right. So you have Brekalo and, and Rebic and Orsic. Yeah, yeah, these are the options. Rebic form has been uh, up and down, but uh, uh, he's this. Uh, He's just this character. When, when he's in the right mode, psychologically, he'll be really a great asset. Uh, young Brekalo is, uh, is, is always playing well for Croatia, and, and I think uh, he doesn't need to worry about uh, getting playing time, even if he's not a starter. He's definitely an option. Yeah, these are, these are the four main options right now for, for wingers. There might be more, but, but yeah. In the centre-forward position, we talked about Bruno Petkovic at Zagreb, who's, who's had injury problems, but is yeah. potentially a, a very exciting long-term successor to Mandzukic. But you also have Andrei Kramaric, who's yeah. not really a striker in that lone sort of striker role. Is He's more of a, a second striker. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's fantastic in that uh, a bit withdrawn role, and, and he, he has really... Uh, become uh, more versatile in Germany than he ever was before. But if you play him as long striker, he just doesn't just doesn't fit, you know, in, in this Croatia team. If he will play uh, in attack, then um, the rest of the team should be a bit rearranged to accommodate him, you know. Dalic tried to play the, uh, even uh, without uh, a proper striker, he played uh, in midfield diamond with two basically wingers up front. It didn't prove uh, very successful, but maybe uh, it could be an option in the long run. As for Petkovic, he hasn't really played that well for a long time now. And uh, um, there are various versions as to why is that so, uh, why he didn't score many goals, why he... Uh, some say that he was not really 100% fit for a long time. Others say that he really wanted a transfer abroad and, and he was disappointed when, when he didn't materialize. So he's a, a big one asset, but more in terms of you know potential than current ability. Right. Even though he's not that young anymore, but it's difficult to, to say at this moment. He, he uh, At the moment... He's not, uh, this past few months, he hasn't really played on that level uh, for him to uh, either deserve a call-up for Croatia, but uh, if he's at his best, that, such as he was during the qualifiers when he was one of the, the key players for Croatia, then definitely, yeah. Are there any players that you think 
should be in the squad that could be called up nearer the time. You mentioned the defender, Josko Guardiola, who's, at, who's yeah. back at Dynamo Zagreb, who's been signed by Leipzig, you know, a pretty good club at spotting talent and, and yeah. making money from talent and they sell them on. Yeah. Is he likely to get that chance ahead of the Euros? Is it too, too early? I to think take? so. I think so because he's just fantastic. And uh, the manager, Dalic, he's uh, so far, he, uh, a pattern emerged when it comes to his call ups. He usually doesn't call up somebody who is young, who is about to make their debut when there's, you know, initial pressure from the media, from the fans to call somebody up. But then after that, if people persist in that, then he calls them up. And then, so uh, he he likes to give those more waiting time. You know? But once they're in, they're, <laughs> they're in, you know. Yeah. So uh, Guardiola is very young and uh, he, it's not a big deal. It's no wonder that he hasn't been called up yet. But I think especially because uh, his main position is centre-back. I think uh, he really deserves that chance and that he, he will get it. This is a player who could uh, be you know, world-class in, in a couple of years. That's very interesting. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the wider world of Croatian football, but first we'll take a quick break. Alex, I wanted to go back to, to 1987, to, to Yugoslavia winning the World Youth Cup with players like Debel Suka, Prozinecki, Boban, Jani, Stimac. All those players went on to form the, the backbone of that Croatia team that qualified yeah. for Euro 96, reached the semi-finals of the World Cup in France in 98. Is that seen as a, a generation that the country celebrates and is proud of? And uh, yeah, the first time the country had played at a you know, major tournament. How does that generation compare with, with the, the current team, the World Cup final team? Is the World Cup final team seen in the same way? Is there affection towards the, the World Cup final team? And are, are they compared, those two, two teams? It's very different for those players. They all grew up and were developed within a, a Yugoslav footballing school. There was so much character in that team. They had five or six leaders, like true leaders in that locker room. They had uh, their strengths and weaknesses. The, uh, they they weren't so good tactically, I would say. But yeah, I think both teams have had their share of luck in their road to semi-final and final. It's really difficult to compare them. I think most people would agree that Luka Modric is the best Croatian player ever, and uh, that's kind of a key argument uh, for this team to be considered uh, better along with, obviously, the fact that they reached finals and not the semi-finals. They, they, were, they were second and those, those guys were third. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe it's uh, some kind of a recency bias reversed, but I think most people uh, still like the old guys better, even though so many of them, you know, after their careers didn't do many things to endear themselves to, to, to an average fan. So... People really respect and love them as players, but the same cannot be said for many of them after their, their careers. But it's, um, it, it's an issue these, these new players also have. So many people in Croatia resent Luka Modric for his role. In all, well, I don't know how, uh, um, how much do you know about this, but uh, he was... Uh, uh, the tax case. 
with his agent. Yeah, yeah. The tra- not ju- I mean, not the tax case in, in Spain, but the the the, the Mamic case in in in, uh, in Croatia when he was in court, you know, and said that he didn't remember about signing some papers. And it's a it's a very long story now to get very deep into that, but. It's fair to say that uh, Luka Modric is not universally loved in Croatia. I mean, that's the least you can say uh, about no. this. But Although to... people do revere him as a player. You mentioned Mamic. Zravko Mamic is a key figure in Croatian football, isn't he? Even though he's, he's, a, he's not a player, he's not a manager, but he's arguably and the he's most... he's not even in Croatia now. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he can't he, even he... step foot in Croatia now. He's the agent. Without being he... arrested. Uh, he he never was a licensed agent, but he still he did things that uh, average agent could only dream of. <laughs> Please don't get too deep into this. No, okay. then, then the podcast would last like three hours. <laughs> you wrote a very interesting article in the Guardian after the World Cup, where you talked about how the football team. This is the World Cup in 2018 and the final. You said that football and footballers had united Croatia in a way that the politicians had failed to do and that the country hadn't built on the euphoria after France 98. Was there an opportunity after the World Cup in Russia to build on football in Croatia in terms of the infrastructure and creating new opportunities for people? Has that happened? Is there a chance that that's going to happen? Nothing like that has happened. (laughs) To anybody following Croatian football closely, I think to uh, to anyone, it was obvious that uh, this euphoria will last for a day or two, and that's it. You know, what what they did with their success in Russia, they uh, I think it's more in terms that they showed the people that something really big can be achieved with just effort and 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 trying to be trying to overcome their weaknesses, especially the weaknesses of character, and that they can achieve big things and, and that uh, perhaps there is something in this perceived collective character that, uh, that could amount to, to something big, you know. But the Football Federation is still just as much corrupt as it was before, just as much a link to corrupt politics as it was before, Basically, nothing, just nothing uh, was done. There was a lot of talk about uh, building stadiums and investing in infrastructure. Some small steps happened on federation level, but these were steps that were long overdue anyway, such as, you know, changing uh, turfs for all the top division clubs. Uh, the Federation has invested in that and they also said they would invest in grassroots by building, you know, artificial turfs across the country. These are just very small steps that should have been taken a long time ago. Uh, And at the same time, people from the Federation always stress how important it would be for Croatia to build a national stadium, which, you know, it's... The stadium in Zagreb, Dinamo Stadium, is, uh, I think, it's the ugliest stadium in Europe at that level. And it's also falling apart. And I think it's just a matter of time when the UEFA will say, OK, you can't play here anymore. It's, it's ridiculous. But Croatia also have other stadiums. They have a, a stadium in Split, which is a bit dilapidated over the years, but it's still way, way better than the Zagreb one. They have some smaller stadium, which, which can be played on. 
And nobody really thinks that stadiums shouldn't be built, but it's just how they approach these things. People from the Federation, such as President Davos Shukar, he always says, give us money to build. We need a, a national stadium. He expects the state, the, the taxpayers, to give him money to build a national stadium. Whereas there are so many cases in which we saw how the Federation, both the Federation and the politicians linked to them are corrupt. And I don't think many people would trust them with that money, you know. And it's always this insisting on national stadium. Why not build, you know, three or four stadiums across the country? Why should be just one? Sure. And you mentioned that the national team playing in Zagreb, but they've also played elsewhere in the country. Yeah. Um, and there have been problems with certain groups of fans, groups of fascist fans and, and flags. There were problems at Euro 2016. Is that a big problem with the fans that follow the national team? Is it a potential problem for the Euros? Assuming that fans can travel to the stadiums, is that something that you're worried about? Is that a, a big problem for the, for the country as a whole? As a rule, as a general rule, when the media and the football people in Croatia talk about fan problems, it's usually a distraction from bigger issues. Obviously, there are some fans who behave in a way that shouldn't be tolerated. There are also some fans who, who use this kind of exposure to turn the public's, general public's attention to some issues in Croatian football, some general issues. But I think it's difficult to talk about uh, these issues without having a, a broader picture in mind. Sure. Uh, it's, not, it's not a problem in itself. We don't really have the time to get very deep into this, but I think my point is that uh, the, the Federation had their ways of even encouraging this kind of racist behavior or, or, or hatred speech mm. when it suited them, you know. Uh, but you, you probably know about the case of Joe Shimonic, who was banned by uh, football authorities for like 10 games because he shouted a slogan that was used by fascists in the, in the, in the Second World War. This was, this was during a celebration after a game. Yeah, yeah. Basically, what the Federation did was afterwards they rewarded him with a, with a job with the national squad, even though he didn't have his badges and he, he uh, absolutely no qualifications <laughs> to do so. They basically rewarded him for this. And, and it's not just a question of him or, or you, you can't really... The problems uh, with, with, with that kind of behavior among the fans cannot really be viewed just as an isolated, you know, thing. They are the same problems that the Croatian society in general has to deal yeah. with. Sure. It's not, it's not something that just appeared among the fans. There are many things, many problems in society that are easy to see through football first. Mm. This is perhaps one of these things, but it's not from yesterday. You know? This is no. something that's been going on forever. Sure. It's a problem that we have in England. It's a debate we're having across Europe. Just finally, looking at the tournament this summer, what's your prediction or your sense of how Croatia are going to do in the group to start with, with England and Scotland and, and, and the Czech Republic? We don't know yet whether fans will be allowed into the stadiums, whether there'll be any advantages you know, playing for England and Scotland in front of home fans. But what's your sense of how, the, how Croatia will do in the group and, and maybe further ahead in the tournament? Yeah, 
I, I'm not really big on, on forecasting anything. <laughs> I know I got a lot of stick for what I said ahead of the Russia tournament. Uh, what I said was that uh, that Croatia is probably the most unpredictable team in the tournament. That they could, you know, not pa- get past the group stage, or they can get to even semi-final. I wrote that. But I also said that at the moment it seemed for me that uh, the, the the first the first thing is that they're closer to to the first thing that they wouldn't get past the group stage, and then you know that there were people just you know uh, taking this out of context, you know, sharing on social networks and saying ah this idiot said that they wouldn't get past the group stage or you know uh, how, what kind of a journalist is that blah blah blah. It was fun up to a point, and then it started uh, being not so fun. But for now, my my prediction would probably be the same. They are really very unpredictable, and they they have proven that they can lose five or six nil to 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 a big team, or or they can beat them. Yeah. So, I think when you just look at the individual quality and and sum that up, Croatia can really go go far. Realistically, they they should be in, in in the quarterfinals or even semifinals. Yeah, quarterfinals would be like a realistic, I think. But uh, Croatia is such a team that they can lose all their games or win the tournament. It it has been like that for 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 years. Maybe last fifteen years it was like that. And Croatia should always be considered a dark horse. Maybe even more than that now because they are now. World Cup runners-up, despite all the the big defeats. But to say the least, they are the dark horses. Yeah. Alex, thanks so much for your time. been fascinating to talk to you about the team and the wider issues about Croatian football. Hopefully, we'll, we'll meet up in the summer at an England-Croatia game, yeah. uh, assuming they let us in. But, um, but th- thanks so much. It's been great to talk to you. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, And you want to find out more, there's a new podcast with a different journalist from every single country competing in this summer's European Championship. You can find them all wherever you listen to your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow this show so you know whenever I release a new episode. And you can find out more great sports podcasts on the Sports Social Podcast Network. Just head to sport-social.co.uk. Gavin Hamilton's Euro Road Trip. Follow and subscribe now so you never miss an episode. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.